Tonight, I want to welcome those that are joining us in the virtual space and those who are in the sanctuary. I want to say welcome. Tonight, I'm going to show you why I always ask you to sit in the front row. I'm going to show you this in the Bible. And then you're going to say, well, Pastor, you're not as crazy as, as we thought. Tonight, I want to show you, uh, out of the book of Numbers, the order of God. And then when we're done, I'm going to ask you, ask those online, how do we measure up to God's order? How do you think we measure up when we study? Because we, we teach this, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the book of Numbers, the God of the book of Matthew, is the God of today. And so he hasn't changed. So whether in method or principle, we want to ask ourselves, how do we measure up with God? And so uh, I'm going to go into this tonight. What I want to show you in the book of Numbers, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, I want to show you the seven camps that exist in this particular section of the scriptures. Now remember this, Israel is sitting at Mount Sinai, and they're waiting for God to give them the signal that they can go forward into the promise. But before they can go forward, God has to arrange them in a particular way. And so he takes the time to orchestrate this arrangement. Let me show you, it's elaborate. I don't know how many of you, just by show of hands, have ever read the four, five, one, two, three, four, five chapters in the book of Numbers, taking the time to go through that. It's very detailed. It's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people with requirements. So I'm glad you did that. It will help me a little bit as we go along. What I want to do first, though, is I want you to, if you've got, give you Bibles, I want you to go to Genesis 35, verse number 23, because in Genesis 35, verse number 23, I want to show you the 12 sons of Jacob, because these are the groups that God is going to arrange around the tabernacle and around each other. And I want to show you what I think might be God's mind in this area. In Genesis 35, the writer actually takes you through, this is very important, he takes you through and he shows you the sons of Leah, the sons of Rachel, the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah. So Jacob, I don't know if you would say he's fortunate, I don't think he's fortunate, but he engages with four women to produce children. You know the story, right? And so this is very significant because how he feels toward each of the women will have a direct impact on these children. So I'm going to show you something to think about. Leah is the woman that he receives by deception. He doesn't want to marry her, but he's forced into a relationship with her, and he doesn't like her. But what's ironic is he has the most children with her. <laughs> Do you follow that? The one that he does not like, he produces the most children with. I think that's incredible. And for me, when I look at that, I always conclude that men can sleep with women that they have no feelings for. So he, you know, so I would say to ladies, don't think that because a man says, um, I, I want to sleep with you, that's an indication that he has feelings for you. This is a man that hates this woman, but he's going to produce six children. Ultimately, he has 13 children, 12 are boys, one is a girl. Six of those children 
are with this woman. And he despises this woman. And she continues to have children for him in hopes that his mind to her would be changed. And for no moment, not one single moment, it's changed. Do you think that if a man hates the mother of his children, that that affects the children? Do you think, do you think the children can sense how the father feels towards the mother? Okay, all right. Think about what you're saying. It's going to be very interesting because then you may see why God arranges them the way he does around the tabernacle and around each other. He gives birth to Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. And then Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So those are the six boys that Leah produces. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. All right? The girl that he loves, she's Rachel. She's the one that he intended to marry, and he produces two children with her. He only produces one with her when he's away. The other one is when he comes back home. That's Benjamin. And when she gives birth to Benjamin, she dies. So she dies, one would say almost in childbirth. And he's the one that changes Benjamin's name because the mother says, because she's about to die, she calls him Benoni, son of my sorrow. Jacob calls him Benjamin, son of the father's right hand. All right? You're also going to see a very significant dynamic because Joseph is the one that Jacob loves. Did you see that? And makes him what? A coat. Notice? You see the family dynamic? So the Bible is not hiding the realities of humanity. He loves Joseph. And as a result of that, the other children, what? Hate Joseph. And he loves Joseph because Joseph has come from the woman that he loves. And so you can even see, though God is working out his plan, you can see the partiality of the human being. And what that teaches us is that God works through our imperfections to get to his perfect plan. So he's not stunted by the imperfections that we have. So he has Joseph and Benjamin, but watch this. Two children with the woman he loves, six with the one he hates, but he also has some more children. Here it becomes interesting because there's a woman called Bilhah, and Bilhah is actually Rachel's servant. And so when Leah starts to have these children, Rachel can't have children. So Rachel says, let me give you my, at that time she would be considered a concubine, let me give you my maidservant and you can raise up children and these children come out of that. These boys are born out of competition. See the difference? Six are born out of hatred, two are born out of love, four are born out of competition. So I'm not having any children. My sister, whom, you know, she's having children, so have some children. So these two boys are important, Dan and Naphtali. They're born out of competition. If I can't have any children, let my concubine have children. 
When you understand this, you'll also understand that the six boys and these two boys now are half-brothers because they don't have the same mother. So this is a beautiful story about baby mamas, isn't it? Didn't just start in our community. In our, this is baby mama stuff right here. Four women, one house, 12 children, different moms, one dad. <laughs> Nothing new <laughs> under the sun. Here's what you don't think about. How do these women live with each other in the house? So we're just thinking about the children. How do these women also interact with each other in the house? So Dan and Naphtali are part of that. And then here's another two boys because Leah seeing that Rachel has given her concubine, she then turns around and gives Jacob her concubine. And Jacob is having the time of his life. <laughs> you would think, right? He's having the time of his life just watching these ladies do their thing and she produces Gad and Asher, two more boys out of competition. Four out of competition, two out of love, six out of hatred. Would you think that's a dysfunctional family? It sounds pretty dysfunctional, right? And he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a God of dysfunction because that's what we give him to work with. So these are the boys now, later on, when they produce children that ultimately become the children of Israel, and they're the families that God has to then put around the tabernacle. So even when God goes to put them around, he considers their relationship with each other so that if he's going to get them to their destination, there can't be any friction He's got to consider their homogeneity, their relationship. So you're going to see that he puts them together according to their mothers, according to their relatability. He thinks about those things because any little thing can hinder him from going, getting them to where they need to go. So just keep that in mind as we look at this. I've given you a diagram of Numbers chapters 1, 2, 3, 4. This is what it would look like if we were to put a diagram together camped at the mountain. Let's go here. In the center, the red and the yellow, yellow, that's the tabernacle. And that is called the first camp. That's the camp of God. So where the tabernacle is, that's where God camps. Outside of the tabernacle, the dark blue, those are the Levites, the Gershonites, the Mirrorites, the Kohathites, Moses, Aaron, and the sons of Aaron. That's called the camp of the Levites, or the camp of the priests. They are around the tabernacle. The design is so that they will protect the Israelite from approaching the tabernacle, crossing boundaries, and ultimately incurring the judgment of God. So the Levites are the closest to the tabernacle for a few reasons. They're going to serve the tabernacle, but they're also going to protect the tabernacle from other Israelites that may want to go and do things that they're not supposed to do. The wider bands, the purple, the green, the baby blue, the orange, that's the camp of Israel. And so around the Levites who are around the tabernacle, you now have all the sons of Jacob 
according to their standards, their tribes, and their families. The reason why I'm teaching you this is I want to show you that when we say that God is a God of order, it is not God allowing us to tell him what order is. It's God telling us what his order is so that we can maximize the journey. So what God is going to do, and you'll see this, the tabernacle is always faced what direction? Take a guess. East. So whenever the tabernacle stops and they pitch, they face it east. And the understanding there is that there is a longing for us to go back to the garden. So we're always facing eastward. Today in Jewish theology, the Messiah comes from what's, what direction? Comes from the east through the eastern gate. That's what they believe. The tabernacle always faces east. So at the east gate, which is the baby blue, Judah will be placed there. Watch, the next tribe would be Issachar, and the next tribe would be Zebulun. Did you see that? So Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun all have the same mother. That's very important for you to see. So they look at each other as pure brothers. There's no half-brothers there. They are pure brothers. They have Leah is their mom. So Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Leah is their mom. Now notice this. It's not called the camp of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. It's actually called the camp of Judah. So one of the three is designated to be the head of the camp. That means that the standard of that camp becomes the standard of Judah. So there's one standard, many tribes, and many families. You see that? So the first tribe that would get up when it's time to march would be who? Judah, because he's the standard bearer. Then Issachar, Zebulun would go behind. What God is teaching us here is that on the journey, everyone has to submit to someone. This is such a critical truth. We have to learn this in the body and in life. So believe it or not, the Levites are submitted to the tabernacle. The children of Israel are submitted to the Levites. And then they've got smaller levels of submission. So for instance, Zebulun, Issachar, they're submitted to Judah, who is the chief or the standard bearer. And everyone comes in that order. On the south side, which is the orange, you have another group. That's the camp of Reuben. Now you've got to ask yourself, isn't Reuben the firstborn, right? Shouldn't he be on the east side? But remember what he did? Slept with his father's concubine and he was demoted. <laughs> so now rather than him being first, he's actually in the second rank. I forgot to tell you this. The camp of Judah represents the first rank. So when the trumpet blows, the first rank gets up, they begin to walk. This group is the second rank. So now you have Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Do you notice something about them? They all have the same mother. It's very significant. Okay? And so you have that there, the camp of Reuben. He's the standard bearer, etc. Now if you go this way up to the green, you have the camp of Ephraim. Let me explain that quickly. Then we'll go through all of this. It's the camp of Ephraim because you've got to ask, well, who's Ephraim? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh are whose sons? Joseph's sons. 
And he has these children when he's in Egypt, and they actually assume a place among the 12. And what you will see now is Joseph gets to have two sons represent him. And some people have said that that's because God is giving him double for the things that he's gone through. His two boys represent. Whenever you see Ephraim and Manasseh, you can simply put the tribe of Joseph. So Joseph's name will not come up. He's represented by his sons. How you get to the 12, you have to pull one tribe out. What tribe do we pull out? We pull the Levites out and we put them in their camp. And we add Ephraim and Manasseh. We get this. Notice Ephraim is the standard bearer and the other tribes have to submit to him. When you go up to the top, the north tribe, this is the third rank, by the way. The purple, that's the camp of Dan. You've got Dan as the standard bearer, Asher, Naphtali, and that's the last one, or the rear guard. When they get up, watch this. If they're going east, south, west, north, is that clockwise or counterclockwise? It's clockwise, isn't it? East, south, west, north. And that's how they get up. Do you see how God also teaches them how to march in a timely way? He doesn't have them marching this way. Then they would be out of step with time. But he has them marching this way to symbolize that they are in step with time. Or another way of saying this is they are relevant on their journey. It's timely. Question for you, tell me. How do you think we measure up in the church? But isn't this, this, this is serious though, because here's what I've seen over the years. If somebody tells you, sit over there, the possibility is there that you're going to have an attitude. It doesn't matter the reasons, there's a possibility. These people, for instance, I may want to sit on the east side. I may want that. I may like the fact that the sun gets up early in the morning and I'm a morning person and I want to be on the east side, but I'm in the tribe of Ephraim. What do I do? What do I do? To say it louder. I submit. <laughs> because on the journey, here's what I've said to God, not my will, but not my feelings, but you see how the Bible is very relevant when you can understand it? When you contrast it to the modern church, you realize that in a lot of cases, it's our will before God's will. It's our feelings before God's will. It's our attitudes before God's will. And that phrase, not my will, but thine, it's just a cliche. That in most cases, if you don't feel a certain way, it's my will, God. Highway for you. So right away, you see how orderly God is, and we're going to show you now how they get up, how they walk, how they take down the tabernacle, how they set up the tabernacle, and everything is flawless. And everyone has to do what they're supposed to do if they're going to get to where God wants them to get to. I told you this earlier. Remember I said this. The reason why God puts them like this is because he's teaching them the principle of submission. Here's why the principle of submission is important. Where they're going, they are going to be in authority when they get there. You, you follow that? So once they get into the land, they're going to have dominion. They're going to be in authority. But how can you be in authority 
if you have not learned how to be under authority. So you can find that in Matthew chapter 8 when the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, you don't have to come to my house. You just speak the word. And Jesus said, that's faith. He says, no, I understand order because I'm a man that's under authority and I have men under me. And I say to one, go and he, another one come and he comes. If you understand order, Jesus, just speak the word and my servant shall be healed. I think this area of conversation is something, because what it really does is it speaks to the level of control that we have over our flesh. Did you follow what I just said? Authority and submission always speak to the level of control that I have over my flesh. Because it's generally my flesh that's out of order and refusing to be in submission to people and to God. And so when you have control over your flesh, it demonstrates itself in submission. And it also makes the idea of Jesus being Lord a whole lot more relevant in our lives because it's easy to submit to him. Here's another image that I thought was interesting when I found it. There are some scholars that believe that the image of the cross is also seen in how God lays them out. So the first one is an image of timeliness and order. But if you do that because of the numbers, you can actually see Judah has the largest, probably they're stretched out. You can see this idea of the cross laid out in the sands of the desert based on how God's arranged them. And then there are people that go on to say that the four beasts that you see, the ox, the eagle, the man, and the lion, can also be seen there in the wilderness when you see them later on in the book of Revelation. Probably true. Just probably true. That's another way of looking at it as well, the cross in the wilderness. So here's what we're going to do. Let's begin with the camp of God. And I'm going to give you the scriptures. You can follow me through here. This is the first one. This is the inner camp, always in the middle. Get the principle. God is always the focal point of his people. He's always the center. Israel Houghton wrote a song, Jesus at the center of it all. Makes sense, right? God is in the middle. It's called the camp of God. It's in the center, and it's represented by the tabernacle. On one level, it's because God is the focal point of all that we do. But on a second level, it's because God lives where? In us. <laughs> you see that teaching? God is in our midst. He lives within us. So in the Old Testament, he situates himself in the middle of Israel. We could also go one step further, we could teach that in the global church, God sits in the midst of the church. Jesus says that, doesn't he? Where two or three are gathered, there am I. Where am I? In the, I'm always in the middle because I'm the focal point or the center of the church or my people, one could say. It's also called Yahwistic grounds. It represents the precinct of God. This is where God is in a very intimate way. When you go on, for instance, there's a distinction between where the tabernacle is and where Israel might be. And so when you move over and you get to the tabernacle, all of a sudden you are on holy ground. You're in the courts of God, right? Enter his gates, his courts. So there's something qualitatively different about this ground than other ground because God is there. So it's, it's the precinct it's where he is, and it's also where his throne is. That's one of the reasons why the Levites, their job is to guard, lest I, an Israelite, say, well, I just want to take a peek. 
And but God says, if you if you do that, the possibility is that you could die in the old covenant. So the Levites are there to actually keep people away from doing those things, unless they're approaching God properly through sacrifice. All right, and so this is what I mean. This camp was guarded. You had to guard this. And the Levites had that job of guarding. But again, watch this. The idea of guarding where God is is didn't start here. Didn't he set a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life in Genesis chapter number 3? Tree of life represents, in our thinking, the holy of holies, where God is, where the man would meet with God. And all of a sudden, that place is guarded. Now, throughout the Bible, there'll be a veil and only the high priest can get beyond the veil. Anyone else going there goes at the risk of their, or the expense of their lives. It's guarded. And this is what it says in, in um, 51. I want to give you that scripture. Yes. And when the tabernacle is set forth, the Levites shall take it down. And this is the part. The stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. So you've got to be careful in this area, coming too close to God. Maybe that's something to do with his holiness. All right, so the second camp, I told you, it's the camp of the Levites. And not just the priests, but all the Levites. You're going to find in the Bible that God will say to Moses now, give me the Levites, dedicate them to the work of the tabernacle, pull them out from among the nation, and situate them for the work of the tabernacle. May I show you what I believe the Levites represent? The Levites represent those who are called in the New Testament to ministry that functions within the precinct, can I say, of a local church. So these are your pastors, your prophets, your people that work within the context of the local ministry, specific, specifically. So these are the Levites. They've got their own camps. They are situated around the tabernacle. East, south, west, and north will show you who they are. And everyone has a particular function around the tabernacle. But the Levites shall pitch around the tabernacle, no wrath upon the congregation, and their job is to keep the charge of the tabernacle. In other words, they're going to do the work of facilitating the tabernacle. They separate the people from God. So they create distance. That's what they're supposed to do in chapter 3. And they teach the people that you just can't run up on God, but there's a way to approach God. Their job, and here's what I think is another, probably another example of ministry, their job is to teach Israel how to approach God. Does that make sense? So their job is to say, if you want to approach God, not that God is unapproachable, but here's how you approach God. This is the order in which you approach God. When I read the Bible and I compare modern Christianity, I believe that modern Christians treat God like he's their boy. Hey, God, what's up? Hey, oh, God. And I think that demeans who God is. Because if God is who he is, then there should be some reverence in approaching him. You can't deny that because you're not going to go to Buckingham Palace and say, yo, Charles, and he's just a man. And so you see how humans behave when they approach people of rank and notoriety. There's order, there's respect. They change their clothes. They look a certain way. They're not disheveled. That's just human beings. 
much more God. That's why I don't believe some of the things that I see us do and say we're in God. We dress a certain way, look a certain way. God knows my heart. I know he does that. I know he knows your heart. But at the same time, you just don't approach him any way you, in my thinking. That's just my thinking. Now, he can correct me and say, you're wrong, Orm, but I, I doubt that. I think that part of God being a king means it, it says something to me about my mentality about him. When I go to pray, when I go to worship, when I dare to approach him, I consider what manner I'm going to approach him in. That's just my thoughts on that. So in chapter 3, whenever I click this, guys, I just seem to keep missing the... The, the, the scriptures, is it that I'm clicking it too fast? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, watch this, verse number six, bring the tribe of Levi, present them to, before Aaron, that they may minister unto him. So here's something I've got to teach you. Aaron and his sons are the priests. The rest of the tribe are the Levites. Do you understand the distinction? Let me say it again. Aaron and his sons have been given the privilege of being the priests. The rest of the tribe are called the Levites. Now, Aaron is also a Levite, but he is a priest. The other Levites are not priests. So watch this. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Got that? Does it make sense? So there's some other Levites that run around, not demeaning them. They move sacrifice around, clear ashes, do all these kind of things. They're serving Aaron and his sons who are serving God in the tabernacle. So even among the Levites, you see the principle of submission. They're submitted to each other. Okay? So God says, dedicate them. And th the reason why God takes them is because God wants the firstborn in Israel. But he says, instead of taking the firstborn, the principle is the first belongs to God. I will take the tribe of Levi instead of the firstborn, and they will be committed to me. Now here's where it gets interesting. When God takes the tribe of Levi, he separates them from any kind of physical work. You get that? So they are not permitted to go in the field. They're not permitted to plow, have cattle. So what happens is Israel is responsible for the Levites. The Levites are responsible for Israel. You got it? The Levites handle the things of God for the nation and the nation handles the things of the world for the Levites so when they bring a sacrifice part of the sacrifice goes to God and to the Levites you see the principle of ministry so that the Levite doesn't do this he's not at work when you have a problem <laughs> make sense so when you need to get to God in the Old Testament and you've done something, whatever it may be, maybe you're sick, you've committed a trespass, the Levite has to always be present and available. And how that's possible is you make that possible by bringing something of your income, your wares to the temple or the tabernacle and allowing the Levite to do what he does. Do you see the principle of giving to the church now? How that comes out of the Old, the Old Testament? And, okay, so let's look at them now. Let me see if I've got this right, because this is just going all over the place. All right. So on the west, the west of the tabernacle, here's the first group of Levites. They're called Gershonites. 
because their father is Gershon, and they're responsible for all the drapery of the tabernacle. Anything that's hanging, that's their responsibility. So if it's a curtain, if it's a drape, that's what they're responsible for. So when the tabernacle's being taken down, they go and get all the drapes, all the hangings, they carry those. They put them on ox carts, whatever it may be. They're responsible for that on the west side. That's what they do. And I'll go through this quickly. It's there in the text. The families of the Gershonites on the west side, house of their fathers, this is the one that's in charge. And they're responsible for the tabernacle, the tent, the coverings, the hangings of the door. That's what their their task is for. Anything that's hanging in the court, any curtain, anything, cords, that's their job. And they do just that. Nothing more. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. On the south side, here's another tribe, or another group rather. They're called the Kohathites. It's another group of Levites. And they're responsible for anything that's a furniture. So if it's a candlestick, if it's the ark, if it's an altar, if it's a, a lampstand, a table, that's what they pick up. But what's interesting is those things, when they're marching, all of those furnishings have to be covered. So there's different color cloths that they put over the tabernacle, or the ark, over the table. But the Kohathites are not allowed to cover it. You follow that? So Aaron and his sons, they will take the different cloths, and they will cover the ark, they'll cover the table, they'll cover the candlestick. The Kohathites are not permitted to go there when they're covering the articles, because they cannot look at those things. And if they peep at those things, they're going to die. So when they come, it's already covered for them. And their job is to pick it up, put staves in it, and carry it according to where they're marching to. But they can't touch those things. It's a very powerful analogy they got. I think in the mind of God, he is so rigid because he wants to teach people that every person has a lane. Don't cross over into someone else's. I think that's what God is trying to say. You have a lane, I have a lane. I've built you to do something. I've given you capacity to do something. Don't look over into the other person's lane and say, I want to do that. Because in the race of life, you're going to disqualify yourself by even stepping on the line of the other person's race. Am I right? So Paul says, let every man abide in his calling. Because you can't do what I do because you're not designed to do that. And I can't do what you do because I'm not designed and called to do that. So in this order, it also teaches us how to appreciate what God has done in our own lives. And how not to look over and say, I want to do what Gina does because I look at what she's able to do. I want to do that. And ultimately, we find ourselves not where we're supposed to be. And God does these things, I think, when he puts death beside something, not because he's a tyrant, he wants you to see that it's serious. Do you agree with that? Now watch, he's not going to kill us in the new covenant. You know that, right? Because we see this all the time. People do everything. I want to sing. Can I, can I confess to you, brothers and sisters, I came up, I'm not a great singer. That's not my calling. I can sing in the shower. I, I do that. But, but when I was in other ministries, they had me on multiple choirs. 
Now, in the Old Testament, what, what, what would I be? Say it louder. I'd be dead. <laughs> but here's what you have to understand, though. This is what God's trying to teach us. People's lives are in jeopardy when we are out of order. He's not trying to say, I'm going to kill you for singing on the choir. You're just going to sound terrible up there. But people's lives are in jeopardy when we are out of order. In other words, when we're not where we're supposed to be. Can I tell you something? That's what's wrong with the whole world. I promise you that. That in the whole world, you have people that are not where they're supposed to be and functioning hard where they're not supposed to be. Not only are they frustrated, but other people are being affected because when God creates things, everything has a place. He puts everything where he wants it to flourish and function, and he then expects it to work from there. So the Kohathites, here's the text now. These are the Kohathites. These are their families. And here's what they're responsible for. The charge of the sanctuary. They're on the south side of the tabernacle. So they've got a spot. This is the person that's in charge. Sorry for going so fast. And here's what they got. The ark, the table, candlestick, the altar, vessels. That's what they do. They're responsible for that as we're going forward. And when they are doing this, watch Aaron and his sons have the oversight. It means that they have to be supervised by the priests. And again, that I think is important. There's supervision when they're doing the things that they need to do. The, the other group are called the Murites. They're at another side, and they're responsible for things like these pillars, poles, sockets, anything structural. That's what they pick up. So they're carrying the poles, the, the cords, the sockets, all these kind of things. So when you study the movement, you will actually see what happens. The Murites go first. Does that make sense? Because they're carrying the... Who comes second? The Gershonites, because they're going to hang all the drapes, hang all the veils, and who comes third? The Kohathites are going to put in all the furniture and the tabernacle set up. And they break it down in the opposite order so that everything has a particular order to it. Here's the verses for the Mirites, the families... 34, they're numbered, that's the amount of them, 35. This is the one that's in charge. They pitch on the north side, and they're responsible for the boards, the bars, the pillars, the sockets. That's their job, and they get to do their job. Pins, cords, all those kind of things. Here's what's interesting. Ephraim, you would agree with this. A pin is a very small thing. A socket's a very small thing. But if they don't have the right pins, the right sockets, the tabernacle doesn't stand up. So you start seeing that it's not, watch, the size of what you do that matters. It's actually just being where you're supposed to be. It doesn't matter how much you do, because that little pin that you stick in to make sure that that tent is... And, it's significantly important. So he can't say, here's what the, the Murite can't say. Watch, 
How come I don't get to carry the ark? Why don't I get to carry the curtains? Because the finger is just as important as the hand. If you've ever hurt yourself, for instance, I found this, you can get older, you find you've got these injuries more often. And let's say one day you hurt your thumb. That's the day that you realize how often you use your thumb and you pay no attention to it. If you hurt your wrist, that's the day you realize, I actually use my wrist all the time. There was a day that my glands, for some reason, my glands in my throat, they had swollen up, and it was difficult for me to swallow. And that day I realized that I swallow almost every two seconds. And I didn't realize that almost every two seconds I'm actually swallowing something. And so after a while, I had to to literally say, (laughs) going to hold it for a minute, then I'll swallow. You don't realize how significant the small areas of the body really are. Paul would call these areas the uncomely. They're not, they're not on the stage. They're not getting the limelight. But they are critically important. And they're to be appreciated. So that's, those are the mirrorites. And then on the east side, right behind or in front of the camp of Judah, you've got Moses, Aaron, and the priests. They're there doing what they do. Chapter 3, verse 38 tells us that those that encamp before the tabernacle toward the east shall be Moses, Aaron, his sons, to keep the charge. And again, the stranger shall be put to death. If you don't understand God, you'll think that he's brutally wicked in the Old Testament. But I argue that he's not. He's just trying to show you how serious the things that he teaches us really are. After the camp of the Levites come the camp of Israel. Now, remember I told you there's seven camps. So if it's the camp of God, camp of the Levites, camp of Israel, that's only three, right? But what you will find in the camp of Israel is that there are only four camps among all 12 tribes. Judah has one. Reuben has another one. Ephraim has the other one, Dan has. So there are four camps among the 12 tribes. And that's how you get the seven camps that exist. Let's look at the first one, situated around the Levites. That's where they are. I'm going to go through this quickly, if you don't mind. And they move in a clockwise manner. East, south, west, north. East, south, west, north. East, south, west, north. So that is actually how to walk in the spirit. Because if you're walking in the spirit, truly, you should be timely and relevant. Make sense? Think about what I just said. If you're walking in the spirit, you should be timely and relevant. If you're not relevant and you say you're walking in the spirit, you're making stuff up. I'm making stuff up. Because the spirit of God is always in step with time. And in fact, in some cases, if we do it well, the spirit of God puts us ahead of time so that we can anticipate what is coming. And you are far more relevant when you can anticipate what is coming than when you react to what is happening. So when Paul talks to us about walking in the Spirit, he's actually talking about this on the journey in the clockwise manner that God moves us. And again, they're situated by standards. There are only four standards for 12 tribes. Then they've got their tribes and their families. 
standards, tribes, and families. Here's the text. Standards, tribe. The children of Israel shall pitch in their tents, every man by his own camp, every man by his own standard throughout their hosts. Everyone has a place. Would you say that? Let me say this. Everyone has a place. Everyone. So here's a scripture for you in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Always put that in front of you. And God would then say to us, let all things be done decently. Every man by his own camp, by his own standard throughout their hosts. And when God puts the word host there, it's because he's implying that when they're like this, they become an army. And when they're an army like that, they're prepared to fight the opposition. When they're not like this and they face opposition, the chances are quite likely that though God is for them, they're going to lose. Did you hear what I just said? It is possible for God to be for us and we still lose. No? You, you, you said, no, it's impossible. It is possible. God can be for us, but we're not for his order. So the two have to work together. God is for me, but I've got to be for him in the things that he's prescribed so that I can become victorious in the things that oppose me or oppose us. So everyone in their hosts, according to the camp. The first camp, in the east side, the camp of Judah. When you, when you talk about people singing, they say, send Judah first. This is where they get this from. That the first group to go forth when we're marching, Judah. Another reason why Judah is here is because God is beginning to exalt Judah now to his place of prominence in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And he's taking Jacob's prophecy that Judah shall be the one that the brethren praise, and he puts Judah in the front. It has nothing to do with Judah's moral standings. <laughs> because if you really think about it, of all these guys, I would say that Ephraim and Manasseh should be in the front, because Judah is not a moral guy. <laughs> so that's something you've got to also realize. God will overlook certain things so that he can still carry out his word. Okay, you don't have to say amen to that. Leave it alone. I'll just leave that alone. So the camp of Judah is the first one. East of the tabernacle, that's where they sit. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 9. I'll go through this quickly. Judah is toward the rising of the sun. The standard of Judah pitches throughout their armies. Nashon is the captain. Wow, okay. Nashon is the captain. And it tells you how many of them, three score, a score is 20, three score is 60, 14, 74,600 of them. And beside them is Issachar. I told you that that's his pure brother. And that's how many of them there are. And then beside him is Zebulun, another pure brother. And then that's the number of them. Notice this. These shall set forth first. So they're actually called the first rank. <laughs> if I'm not in the first rank, I cannot go until it's my turn. Agreed? So I hope you hear what I'm saying. Hear my heart, saints of God. You can't do, I can't do what I feel like 
in the kingdom of God. I just want you to hear that because I see it. Sometimes I see it in my own life, but I see it prevalent in the body. It just cannot do what I feel like because when I do what I feel like, I'm in charge. When I do what God has instructed, he's in charge. And then it becomes his kingdom, not mine. And if I could, I know this is not going to reach all ministries, but I wish all ministries would commit to this. It is not our doing. It's the Lord's doing. But it's marvelous in our eyes. So part of this instruction is, God, how can I make sure that the things that I'm doing are exactly what you want me to do and not what I want to do? That's a daily exercise. It really is for every single believer. How do I make sure that in this fallen body of flesh, the things that I do are the things you want me to do and not the things that I necessarily want to do? That's an exercise all by itself. How can I get myself in order? That camp, again, I told you, it consists of Judah. He's the head, Issachar, and Zebulun. Genesis 35 will tell you who they are. Their mother is Leah. They're poor brothers. There's no friction among them. And again, they're the first rank. Let's go to the second one. The second camp is the camp of Reuben sitting on the south. And Reuben is the standard bearer. He's been demoted to the second rank because of his actions. It's his camp, though, on the south side of the tabernacle. That's where they're going to situate themselves. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16 will take you through this. The south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben according to their, now God makes it clear, according to their armies. So what am I doing in this dynamic? I'm actually creating an army. And I'm showing you how an army works. Is God right? Anyone in this place? I've never been. I've just studied it. Anyone been in the military? We don't have anyone. I guarantee you that if you teach this to people in the military, they would say, I understand this. This is how it works. So God is creating an army, and then he will show them who their captains are, who the standard bearers are. That's the number of them. They pitch. Simeon joins them. He's another pure brother. Those are the number of the Simeonites. And then Gad makes up the last of that camp of Reuben with his numbers. And ultimately, I think when we get here, they shall set forth in the second rank. What they're going to do is they're going to wait for someone to blow a trumpet. So in Numbers chapter 9, Moses is going to build two silver trumpets. He's going to blow the trumpet or designate someone to blow. When the trumpet blows, the first rank gets up. When the trumpet blows again, the next rank gets up. When it blows again, the Levites begin to get up according to their orders. The Mirrorites grab the bars and the pillars. The Gershonites grab the curtains. They begin to march. Then the third rank is going to go. The Kohathites are going to grab the furniture. and They're going to go and so forth and so forth and so forth. Everyone in their rank 
in their role, in their order. It's amazing. It's amazing. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, that's, what, that's what's in that group. Groups of threes, by the way, so there's some numerology at work here. Only threes, there are no fours. Second rank is what this group is called. And they're followed by the camp of the Levites. When they get up, the camp of the Levites go, and it's their turn. This is amazing. One would also teach, I think it makes sense, that you also have to be able to discern the sound to be in order. So you have to know how to listen for the sound. Say, oh, that's the sound for the second rank to get up and go. So then you start seeing God begin to teach in the Old Testament this idea that it's important to have ears to hear. And they begin to hear. Numbers 2.17, Then the tabernacle shall set forward with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp as they encamp, so that shall they set forward every man in his place by their standards. I can't emphasize this enough. Every man in his place by their standards. Do you know that I've actually seen people argue about doing what they're not called to do? I've actually seen people fight. <laughs> when you say, well, I don't think you should do that. What do you mean? I've actually seen people fight to be out of order. <laughs> and I think, I think that's amazing. Fight. Like, I, I, I want to do that. I, I want to do that. I, wanna, I think I should do that. And I said, well, that's part of the problem is that we're fighting to be out of order and we're not using the same energy to be in order. That's really the goal. How can we be more in order? The other camp, two more, the camp of Ephraim. Remember I told you Ephraim? These are Joseph's sons, Ephraim, Manasseh. Joseph gets to be on the, uh, that would now be the west side. So his boys represent Ephraim as the head of the camp. It's his standard. They're the west of the tabernacle, and they're going to be followed by Manasseh and uh, Benjamin. West side, the standard of the camp of Ephraim, according to their armies. Captain shall be this man, Elishama. Amazing. That's their number. That's how many of them they are. Then the tribe of Manasseh. Gamaliel shall be their captain. That's how many of them they are. Then the tribe of Benjamin. Abidin shall be their captain. That's how many they are. And then lastly, they go in the third rank. That's when they move. Okay. I was reading a book. Uh, before we do the last one, there's only one more. I was reading a book, and the book said that the Egyptians had a similar model under Ramesses II, where the pharaoh was in the center, his priests around the outside, and the armies outside around the priests. And you know what I believe? I believe that is true. And you know why I believe that? I believe that anything that God is doing, <laughs> it is duplicated in the kingdom of darkness. Do you know why? Because it works. <laughs> So here, this little, it's a little trail for you just for a minute. There's nothing in this world that God is not the author of. Nothing. There's nothing in this world. What's wrong 
is what direction it's pointing in and who is getting the glory from it. So when you understand how the world works, never say this, never say what they're doing out there, we shouldn't do it in here. What they're doing out there, we should do it in here, but point it in the right direction. That's called transformation. That's how you sanctify a practice, point it in the right direction, and allow God to get the glory in his world. So I think it's quite true, and you will see this again. Like I said, this is not a military college, but if I was sitting here in the Canadian Military College teaching this to cadets and recruits, they would say, we understand this, we understand the rank, the order, the row, we understand every man in his place, we understand how this works. If you're going to fight a battle and win, you have to have this structure and order. Now, here's one more thing I would say. You can have the structure, but not have the heart. So as structured as they were, the moment they started to march, because their heart was not right, they began to complain. So you can have the right structure, but you then have to add what? The right heart to the structure. Because as you're going forward, the structure does not preclude that there's going to be challenges. So you are going to run into some days when there seemingly there's no water. That's a test of your heart, not the structure. The structure is designed to give you victory over that which opposes you. Your heart is designed to give you victory over the natural challenges of life. And so when they leave in chapter 10, Ephraim, they start marching in this wonderful order. The ark is in front of them. The cloud is going in front of them. And they get hungry. (laughs) And they begin to complain, even though God has prepared them for all things. Let's look at the last one, the last group. Sorry, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, that's what, that's what this uh, camp is made up of. This is the third rank, which you, uh, you've seen that in the text. And the seventh group is the camp of Dan. And this is an interesting group because they're at the back. <laughs> they're the last ones to go. And for some reason now, God has them. They're not all full brothers. And I've got some of Zilla's people and Billa's people, and they're sitting at the back And their job is to protect the camp from anything coming in the back. They're at the north side of the tabernacle. They're the last ones to get up. They've got to wait until the last trumpet blows. They've got to be patient while everyone else is going ahead. They've got to control their children so their children don't run out of order. Isn't that that interesting? So they may have children and their children will say, well, everyone's going, we're going. They've got to control their children. That's not that easy. They've got to control their families in case somebody says, well, I think we should go now. They're on the north side. Their captain is a hyzer. Beside them is Asher and their captain. That's their numbers, almost through. Then you've got Naphtali and their captain, That's their numbers. And they go in the hindmost with their standards. They're the last ones that go. And God calls them the rear reward. I like that term. He calls them the rear reward. There's a reward for going last. For being patient enough to wait. I think that's very, very significant. 
Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. The fourth rank, the rear guard or the rear reward. This is the last one. So let's do it like this. I'm through, but let's do it. So here it is. It's the 24th day of the second month. Moses blows the trumpet and up gets the tribe of Levi or Judah gets up and they begin to walk. And beside them, Zebulun and Issachar, they begin to walk. They're marching. And after they get up, then all of a sudden, another sound comes, and the tribe of Reuben gets up. Everyone gets up at that time. And with him comes Simeon and the other tribe, and they get up, Gad, and they begin to walk. The Levites know it's our time. Third, the Mirites get the poles and the sockets. They carry them. They begin to walk. And I'm seeing this incredible march of people through the wilderness to the degree, listen carefully, that when the enemy saw them coming like that, they feared. Balaam said, or Balak said, a people have come up and they are going to do to us as they've done to these others. And he sent for Balaam to curse them. That means that people watch, and you know this to be true, they can see order. Order can be seen. If that is true, brothers and sisters, what else can be seen? Disorder. If order can be seen and respected, and dare I say even feared, disorder can be seen and laughed at and ridiculed. So it depends on what you're going to tag the name of God to. If you tag the name of God to order, people may end up respecting your God. If you tag his name to disorder, guess what they're going to do? After they finish laughing at you and I, they're going to disrespect your, your God. So not only are we a part of this, but watch, the name of God is at stake when we say we're marching on his behalf. And beyond just that, order secures victory. Because where there's order, the Spirit of God can move And watch this, defend us and fight for us in Jesus' name. I don't think I'm crazy. I don't have it all right. I really don't in so many areas. But when it comes to this, I see it clearly. I see what's foolishness. I see what's order. And I go home, I scratch my head and say, I'm not so sure that Christians on a whole are willing to do this kind of work to represent God in the earth. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that they even think this is important. I say, Pastor, it doesn't take all of that. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. That's all it takes. That's not all it takes. It takes God putting us in order. Putting everyone where they're supposed to be so that you can maximize your gifts and maximize your capacity and watch and lower your attitude and also diminish your flesh so that God can work through us. That's what I see when I look at the church. I see a glorious body of people marching in the name of Jesus. And I see a group of people that Satan cannot do anything with. Because as, 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 as heart wrong as they were when Balaam came, Balaam said, How can I curse 
those whom God has blessed. And every time Balaam tried to say something, tried to curse them, another word came out of his mouth. Because people can see when God's hand is upon a body. I want you to desire that. I personally want to pastor a ministry that people look at and say, wow. <laughs> and even in their wows, they can say, you know what, these people aren't perfect. And we say, yes, we're not. But there are certain things that we can do and do them well. So now do you see why? This may sound silly. Now do you see why I say to you that when you come to the house of God, even how you sit yourself is connected to your sense of order. Your ability to listen to an, a sanctuary coordinator say, sit over here. And you say, okay, no problem. I went away and I thought deeply and I said, you may think that's a small thing, Pastor, but because I teach and I sit here, I see some of the things that create distractions. And I think about that. And I see, like I told you before, that when you sit there and somebody walks by you to go to the front, I'm saying something, you clue me out. Because you immediately. How do you know that in that moment, as you clued me out to focus on the person walking by you, that God wasn't speaking to you in that moment? So part of order, order minimizes, watch, distraction. Because everyone's where they're supposed to be. You know, I've been to places in the body where, it doesn't matter what I say, one, one year we had gone down to Dallas, we had gone down to one of the major ministries for a leadership conference, maybe 8,000 seats in the, in the building, you can sit anywhere you want, but what I like about the Americans is they've got these, you know, stocky ladies, skirts and white gloves, and they stand at the door. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So we walked in, the, and they're, you know, Texas, this way, sir, we're seated in the sanctuary. This way, sir. And the ministry was, it wasn't a chairman, it was a pew ministry. So in the pew ministry, guess what you had to do? Everyone walk down the end. <laughs> so all the way down, that pew is finished. Next one, next one. Whatever I thought, whatever I liked, I had to conform to that because they had an order of how they wanted to seat their facility. It goes on so many levels, brothers. It can be as simple as lining up to register your children in the children's ministry. It could be as simple as parking where you're told to park, even though you think you should park here because it's closer to that door that you like to use when you're leaving. And then you can take this into the wider sphere of life where someone will tell you, hey, you know, the Raptor game, you got to go through this door. But because you've learned submission and order in the kingdom of God, that's not a challenge for you. So even in social things, public things, ministry things, there's an order that defeats the enemy every time. And it puts us at the top every time. I'm through, but I want you to take 30 seconds and think about what I'm saying. Think about whether or not your flesh is more dominant than God's order. Think about that. I'm not talking about good days when somebody does you wrong. Do you know when I'm driving on the road, I, 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 I'm challenged, I know. This area, much prayer is needed for me. So offer much prayer. But do you know that when you're driving on the road, there are actually lanes 
that you, by the rules of the road, you're not supposed to really drive in. They're actually designed for passing. Did you know that? So there are times when somebody will come rearing down at me and I'll say, I'm not moving over. Just because you came rearing down on me, I'm going to actually slow down. Do you know what that is? you know what that's called? That's my flesh. Because what I'm really supposed to do is just move over and allow the person to go. God would teach us these things in his word. How to be a person of order in everything that we're doing. I'll close with this last statement, then we'll open the microphones for Q&A. Are there any questions? If you and I can put ourselves in order, there's very little that the devil can do to us. I want you to hear that. If we ever find that vein that's God's order, there's very little that the enemy can do to us because he flourishes in chaos and disorder. He knows very little about what to do in God's order. Take a moment, brothers and sisters. If you've got a question, we're going to do that in 30 seconds. Ask God in this moment, make me a person of order. That's what I'm asking him. I don't always get it right, but I want to be a person of order. Heaven, whatever your concept of it, will be a place of order. Eternity will not be a place of chaos and disorder. And time is the training ground that prepares us for order. Order is so beautiful that the Holy Spirit can be moving. People are worshiping and praising and running, and there's still order. Because God is a God of order. My prayer tonight is that this ministry, above all things, would fall into the order of God. Not trying to impress anyone, not trying to please anyone on the terra firma, just to be in order with God. From altars to pews to paraministries to the work that we do, all things decently and in order. Help the body, God. Help every person in the body to find his and her place around the tabernacle. Every man in his standard, every man according to his hosts, everyone in his family. And with you at the center, we can't lose. We cannot lose in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The microphones are open if there are any questions tonight before we go. We've got about, I'd say about maybe 17 minutes. If there's anything you want to ask about tonight's lesson or anything else in the book of Numbers that you've read, we'll take 30 seconds. If there are any questions online, um, Robert, if you can manage that for me, if anything comes through. Uh, Grace, we've got a question. Sure. Just check and see if the um, top has been turned on, David, quickly for her. Thank you, Lord. Pastor, I thank you for dissecting yes. the way that you have done because I have scanned over 
those chapters yes. because I didn't see the importance of telling me who's going to carry furniture and who's going to carry pillars yeah. and all of that. So I really appreciate yes. you taking the time to dissect it and put some level, greater level of importance for me to go back and yes. read and respect yes. because it, it really did not, I did not see it yeah. from that standard. So I thank you. You're welcome. And it, and it seems like a small thing, doesn't it? Because what, what we can do, Grace, is we can say, watch. It doesn't matter who carries the tabernacle as long as it's carried. Exactly. Can we just say, it doesn't matter who carries the drifts as long as it gets done. And even in that sincere disorder, we've actually thrown ourselves into chaos. Because whenever we say things like that, it presupposes, watch, that God has not already thought about what ought to be done and has already prescribed it before we got here. That's part of the meticulosity of God. He's actually thought about everything that needs to be done and everyone that needs to do it before that person even got here. So that you don't have to watch. You don't have to make up anything. You just have to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will. God is a director. The small things, as we said, grace, they matter. They really matter. If this was the Old Testament, David, everyone wouldn't be allowed to move the chairs. <laughs> I'm, I'm, if this was the Old Covenant, God would have somebody assigned who has been trained to adjust the chairs. And as much as it upsets you, it wouldn't be your job. Never tell yourself this, I'm coming, Robert that I see it not being done and I'm going to do it because no one... Because what you are then saying is that God doesn't see that it's not being done. And in some cases, God sees that it's not being done and he's working with someone to get them ready to do it. And he's also disciplining someone who should be doing it. But the key is when you pray, ask God, what is it exactly that you want me to do? specifically. Everyone, write this if you're making your notes. Acts chapter 9, here it comes. When the Apostle Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus road, Robert, there are two questions he asks the Lord. Very significant. The first one is he says, Who are you, Lord? That's the knowledge of God. Because before you do anything for him, you have to know him. But the second question is just as important, right? What would you have me to do? I would argue, Sylvie, that the more I know him, it's the more I know what it is that he has me to do. And the two are connected. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. What would you have me do, Lord? I need you to go down to this house, meet this man, get baptized. I'm sending you now to the nations. When you then begin to do what you do and you're challenged, you have a confidence that what I'm doing is what God's called me to do. So people are going to oppose me, but this is what I'm supposed to be doing because the Lord told me to do it. And I cast not away my confidence. It doesn't matter if you like me doing it, I'm supposed to be doing it. This is where he's placed me. Watch. And where he places me, no one can uproot me. I can uproot myself, but no one can pluck me out. 
Everyone needs to know. Robert, I'm coming. Here's another thing. I am so bothered by people who simply work because they have to work. Christians, I mean, to just work because it's got to get a job. No, you don't work because you have to work. If you do work, it's because you found out where God wants you to work. If we're not driven by, I need a salary. I need to, I understand that. But that can't be how I make my decisions all the days of my life. I'm in this company because God has placed me, whether it's seasonal or permanently, that's where I'm supposed to be because that's where he's placed me. Do you know why that's important, bigger than what I get paid? People are connected to that. So they're blessed. People are blessed when I'm where I'm supposed to be. You know that, right? People are blessed when you are where you're supposed to be. That's what's really at stake. And ultimately, God is glorified when we are where we're supposed to be. It's important grace. Robert? Thank you, Pastor, for all uh, that you've taught us tonight. Yes. Uh, my question actually will be going on uh, two directions. Yes. But I will start with uh, order. You spoke about order. Mm-hmm. And order leads us into authority. And in so doing, we also see governance over there. Yes. So if we take order, authority, and governance, and people will say in today's era, mm-hmm. we are being led by the spirit. How do we answer people who tell us that what they are doing is that they are being led by the spirit to do it when in, in actual, actual fact, it doesn't follow the order, uh, governance, and authority? Pause. Do you hear what he just said? Because we, we face this all the time in our local ministries and in life. There are Christians that you can look and see that what they're doing, it's not orderly. But they're going to insist, God's told me to do that. And Robert says, what do we do? The first thing we do is we correct them. We try to correct them, not publicly, but we sit them down and we teach them. Hopefully they will hear. It's not in every case that they're going to hear, but that's our responsibility to correct them. Second thing is we build ministries that are strong enough in governance that when people do those things, immediately they're addressed. I think one of the things we should realize about the church is any, any level of governance that exists in this world should take its cue from the governance of the body of Christ. So the strongest place of governance in the world should be no, it is so strong that even God places in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, gifts of government. So the one place we should not really see disorder is whenever the body of Christ gathers. Because even God tells us that at some point you're going to judge angels. I'm going to put you in a place of authority where you're going to judge angels. Can you not judge matters among yourself? And so we should see ministries where people understand there's governance here. Robert, you know this because you're a corporate person. When someone is going to invest in a company, there are a few things that they look for, right? So if you're going, let's say you're a serious investor, you're going to invest in a Goldman Sachs or something. You look at things like the board, who sits on the board. You study the values of that corporation but you also look at the governance of that organization because its governance determines its longevity. 
If it has weak governance, you're probably not going to invest in that. So it is in the body of Christ. Heaven looks at the church and expects to see the government of God at work in the body. Quick question for everyone. When they began to march, what article, we didn't do it, we'll do it next week or the week after when we come, what article went before them? Do you remember? As soon as they got up and started walking, the Kohathites actually, some of them had to take one piece of furniture and go in the very front. That was the ark. The Kohathites, a small subset of them, took the ark, put it on their shoulders, about six of them, walked all the way around and went in front of Judah, and the ark began to lead them. And we teach people that the ark represents not just the glory of God, but also the governance of God. Because inside the ark, that's where the commandments were kept. So what leads the church today, it should be the government of God. We should understand governance. This is why when we understand this, watch closely. This may sound hard, but when you understand governance, what the leader says, everyone says amen to that. (laughs) I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying me. I'm telling you how God sets this thing up. When we do this two weeks from now, you will see that they're led by a cloud and a command by the hand of Moses. This way, this way, this way. And we trust that Moses is listening to Yahweh. When we understand that order, because today, in today's world, here's another problem. I sit in my corner. I think we have too many people teaching us today, Robert that you have a voice. (laughs) You know what I just said? Find your voice. What's your opinion? And I've discovered that what we call input is an excuse to complain. What we're calling feedback is an excuse to complain. Because when God moves, I close my mouth. If that's the way you're going, God, doesn't matter if I don't like walking that way. That's the way you're going. Because I'm in submission to you. But what we've done today is we've taken what is really governance and we've said, that's tyranny. And we've actually taken what what we call today democracy and we've democratized the church. When you democratize the church, everyone has a say in its direction and we end up going nowhere for a long time because we sit around talking about, I think we should go this way. No, I think we should go this way. How many people think we should go this way? Is there consensus on this way? I think we should go this way. And before we know it, we're all dead. And we've gotten nowhere. We're going to see in the process of time that God says, I don't need your opinion, Orm. I don't need your opinion, Robert. I'm going to give you my word. And my word is what I want you to follow. And if your opinion matches my word, great. If it doesn't, submit to my word. I didn't make any enemies tonight, did I? I'm telling you, that's what the Bible shows us. What we often see sometimes doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Does that help a little bit? You said you had a second piece. Thank you so much. Hmm? Thank you so much. Okay, was that all? I thought you had two pieces. Uh, Yeah, I put all of them together. Okay, thank you, Robert. Appreciate that. Any, Any further questions before? Yes, please, we've got the time. Yes. Use the mic so they can hear you online, not just me as well. I was looking at the different camps. 
Yes. And I, I know that you explained it already, but when I look at the camp of Judah mm-hmm. and I look at the camp of Dan, it seems like their place, the higher number goes first and the second highest number go to the last. Is, right. is there a reason for that? I, I don't know if there's a reason for the numbers. I have not studied that deeply to find out because you're right, Judah seems to be the largest tribe, but then you have different numbers throughout the other tribes. I, I don't know if there's any particular reason for that. I think God is just giving a sense of what the numbers are. I could look further and see if there's any significance in the numbers. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's a specific significance to the numbers. Does that, does that <laughs> kind of help you a little bit? But you know what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to go home. <laughs> you, you guys know what I'm going to do, right? I'm go home. I'll come back with something for you in two weeks' time. And it's always you that's asking me these questions that put me on the spot. Her name is Sonia. Please, everybody. <laughs> Any further questions before we go? Something coming online? That okay. If we can put ourselves in order, there is little the enemy can do to us. Yes. Just a comment. That's it's a comment. If we can put ourselves in order, there's very little the enemy can do to us. If we can put Rhema, this ministry, that ministry in order, there's very little the enemy can do to us. I think we're through for tonight. Let's rise on our feet, everyone. Thank you for coming into the house of God. But let these words, they may seem sterile and dry, and they're not as exciting as telling us how to step into this and do this. But order is at the heart of God. When the world was formless and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and everything was a chaos, chaotic mess, God stepped in and said, let there be light. And there was light. God began to separate the light from the darkness. And whenever God did something that brought order, God said, and it was good. I believe he's saying the same thing to us today. Let there be order and governance, placement and authority in the body. It is very good. I need you to take your hands and just lift them up to God. My prayer tonight is make me Oramikle, a person of order, God. It is truly not my will, but your will be done. And if I'm out of order, if I'm out of alignment, if I'm walking in a particular way that is according to my will, turn my life towards your will. Bring order to my life, God, in every aspect of my life. I lift my hands because I desire to be a person of order. And as we are people of order, so the body becomes a body of order. And so the church globally becomes a body of order. And God will be glorified. Here am I, God, shape my life. Take away the chaotic places of my life. Take away the areas that are driven by my own ambition, my own self, my own fleshy appetites and desires and replace them with your will at whatever cost and price. Not my will, 
but thine be done. And this cup cannot pass except I drink it. So I say, your will be done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.